Well, good morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew, I'm sorry, I'm so used to saying that, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, as we are taking a, uh, a break from Matthew for December to spend time looking at what God's Word says about the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 1. And uh, before we really dig into our text this morning, I want to um, encourage and, and maybe even um, give a gentle challenge to you, especially if you call FBC home, that I want to give an encouragement and, and uh, like I said, maybe a gentle challenge to you. Um, this time of year is when many people are more open to going to church than other times of the year. As we're approaching Christmas, um, there's sort of just this cultural um, softening, we could say, uh, towards going to church and Christian things. Um, okay, so there is a uh, cultural willingness, uh, more so than other times of the year, to go to church. And so I want to encourage you, again, if you call FBC home, then uh, this, is, this is maybe more for you than if you're just a visitor, but certainly if you're visiting, um, we want people to hear about the birth of the Savior. Do we not? We want people to hear of the hope that there is in Christ Jesus. And that's really what we're looking at through December, right? Our, our preaching, our teaching is going to be directed at that in, in an evangelistic way. And so I want to encourage you, if you have a friend or a family member who doesn't know Christ, um, or, or even if they're a Christian and they don't go to church anywhere, I want to encourage you, invite them to church this December. Invite them to church. Don't, don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. Invite them to church. You might have a major impact. You might be used by God to transform their life. So I want to encourage you just to have that on your heart and in your prayers that God might open up those opportunities for you um, to be used for the sake of the gospel in that way. Well, Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Verses 26 through 28 is our text this morning. Um, politicians are notorious for making grand promises they don't keep, aren't they? Uh, Herbert Hoover, for example, promised that as president, he'd put a chicken in every pot, a car in every backyard, and eight months later, the Great Depression gripped America. Uh, George H.W. Bush famously said in his presidential acceptance speech, Read my lips, no new taxes. And uh, two years later, when the country was faced by a recession, he realized, going to have to increase some taxes here and sign some new laws into effect. Um, oftentimes, these impossible promises, which, which are not kept, cause us to be a little suspicious and skeptical, don't they? Uh, it's not a coincidence that politicians are the least trusted profession, the least trusted career in America. And maybe you've even made some impossible promises. Vowing to do things that are simply outside of your, your control or outside of the realm of reality, like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life saying, Mary, you want the moon, I'll throw a lasso around it and bring it down to you. Right? It's romantic, but it's impossible. It's not going to happen. But what about when God makes a promise that seems impossible? What about when God makes a promise that seems impossible? Do you approach it with the same kind of skepticism you, you might approach a politician's promise? In our text this morning, God makes a number of promises to a young girl named Mary, uh, promises that perhaps seem impossible. But Mary's response to these promises really serves as an example for us and shows us the way to find true comfort and joy from those seemingly impossible promises of God. Let's read our text, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named 
Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Lord and our God, you are the God of promises. Giving so many promises to your people. Being faithful to keep each one. And this morning, Lord, as we come to your word, we see some of those promises that have been given. Promises about the birth of your son, about who he is and what he is to do. Promises regarding the way he would come into the world. And Lord, in these promises is a great hope for us. So Lord, I pray that we would be comforted, encouraged, uh, drawn to worship Jesus Christ by what we read this morning in your word. And we thank you, Lord, that this is not a myth or a legend, but that these are the very words of God. That they are true in all they say, that they are historically factual, and that our hope can rest upon them. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to proclaim your word in a way that's helpful, glorifying to you, and edifying to your church. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Three things we see in our text this morning. Uh, first, verses 26 through 33, we see the promise of a Savior's birth. And then we see the promise of a miraculous conception in 34 through 37. And finally, uh, the promises are believed and received. The promises are believed and received. Now, we are parachuting into chapter 1 a little bit, so I want to summarize what's happened before this point in Luke's gospel. Um, the Gospel of Luke begins with the angel Gabriel appearing to an old man, a priest, uh, named Zechariah, and telling him that he and his wife, who, who are very, very old and have been unable to have children, would have a son. Uh, and this son, we find out, will be John the Baptist, who would be a messenger that would prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. Now, Zechariah doesn't believe this at all. He says, that's, that's crazy. And he is as a result, uh, made mute. He can't speak until that baby is born. But sure enough, his wife Elizabeth does conceive. And in verse 26, our, our text this morning, we fast forward to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Um, but the focus of our text today, of course, is not on Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, because the angel Gabriel is sent from heaven, from God, to bring a 
another message to somebody else. And we read in verse 26 that Gabriel sent to a city in the region of Galilee called Nazareth. And this is the northern part of Judea by the Sea of Galilee. Um, in, in, in Greek, there's really only one word to describe a, a, a place of habitation, right? Um, they don't have words in ancient Greek for city, village, town. It's just one word. But when, Greek, or when Luke says that he goes to a city, uh, we shouldn't think of a big bustling metropolis. Nazareth is not like New York, right? Nazareth is like Stagecoach Nevada, right? Some of you are like, where's Stagecoach Nevada? Exactly, exactly. Uh, what business would an angel from God have in a place like that? Why would he go to a place like Nazareth? Well, we find out in the next verse, in verse 27, the angel's being sent to a young woman named Mary. A young woman named Mary. Uh, we read in verse 27 that Mary is a virgin, um, which tells us, one, that she's young. She's probably somewhere between 13 and 15, very young, uh, by our standards especially, and she's not yet married, right? She hasn't known a, a man. But she is betrothed, we read in verse 27, um, and betrothal is kind of like engagement. That's what we have today, but betrothal was, was something a lot stronger. Um, in, in ancient Judaism, when you became betrothed to somebody, uh, it was kind of like an engagement, but you would actually take public, legally binding vows. There would be a ceremony where you're saying, I legally, solemnly vow to marry this other person. Um, it would actually require a divorce to break off a betrothal. That's how serious and binding uh, this sort of relationship was. Now, the betrothal period usually lasted about a year. And that's the period that Mary's in right now. So she's not living with her future husband. She's probably living at home with her parents. Um, and that's probably where she is when the angel Gabriel comes to see her. And we read that Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Joseph. And we're told that Joseph is of the house of David, that he's a descendant of that famous Old Testament king. And that's pretty important uh, when we come to some of these later verses. But for now, all we need to know, the significance of this, is that any children born to Joseph and Mary legally are going to be considered part of David's lineage, David's household. Now, from an outside perspective, um, there's nothing really remarkable about Mary. She doesn't live anywhere important. She's not somebody important. She's not a queen. She's not rich. She's not famous. She's not royalty. But it's to her that this angel appears. And to God, there are no insignificant people. And the angel comes and verse 28 greets her with a typical Palestinian greeting. He says, greetings, greetings, right? Just like hello. But then he goes on to describe Mary as, O oh, favored one. Literally, one who has received grace. That's how he addresses Mary. One who has received grace. And who has bestowed this grace on Mary? Well, it's, it's none other than God. God has favored Mary. There's many young virgins in Judea. Thousands, probably. But God has graciously chosen Mary from them all to be the mother of the Savior. Right, we see even in this title that Mary's not chosen because she's full of grace, but she receives grace because she is chosen according to God's plan. And the angel tells Mary, the Lord is with you. 
The Lord is with you. Because God has bestowed His grace on Mary, He's not oblivious to her. He's not far off from her. He's, he's certainly not against her, but He is with her. Uh, the angel makes clear that God is near to Mary and that He will bless her. Now, friends, in the same way, if you've received God's grace through Christ, you can rest assured that He is always with you, that He will never leave you, and that His intention for you is to bless you. This, this greeting that the angel brings to Mary, it's a good greeting, isn't it? There's nothing bad here. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Those are all things I would want to hear. But despite the goodness of this greeting, when we look at verse 29, we see that Mary is actually deeply troubled by what she hears from the angel. Um, that she's, she's confused, that she's distressed. Now, we know when we read the Bible from cover to cover that angels sometimes appear in a very scary way, uh, that they don't look like these chubby little babies with wings, right? But that they're these really uh, fierce and magnificent creatures. Um, it could be due to the angel's appearance that Mary is troubled, but it seems when we look at verse 29 that she's troubled at the saying, not at the appearance of the angel, but at the saying. She's confused and distressed by what she's hearing. Why, why would this wonderful greeting be confusing to Mary? Why, why would this be so troubling to her? Well, I, I think it's kind of like this. Imagine if you went to go see your favorite president at a campaign rally. And during his speech, right, out of tens of thousands of people, he points right at you and he says, Hey, insert name here, I'm so glad you're here at my rally. Uh, that'd be a little unnerving, wouldn't it, right? That'd be the last thing you would expect for that person who's, who's so great, right, and respected, right, in your mind to identify you out of tens of thousands of people to, to even mention you by name and say, hey, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, y you'd be a little freaked out probably. Why is he paying attention to me? Uh, well, imagine you're in Mary's shoes. Right? Who is she that Almighty God would send a messenger from heaven to her. Right? Mary tries to figure out what's going on. Why is God speaking to me through this angel? And, and she tries to figure out what kind of greeting this might be. What's going on? Well, the, the angel's not oblivious to her distress, and he immediately speaks words of peace to her in verse 30. He says, Do not be afraid, Mary. Do not be afraid. He knows her name, right? He knows who she is. <clears throat> Do not be afraid. And he goes on to give her a reason why. I, I love that about God's word. There is always a reason for God's people to not be afraid. And it's found in who God is. And he says, Mary, you found favor with God. You have found favor with God. He reminds Mary once again of the grace that she's received from God. The angel reminds her, do not be afraid. God, by His grace, has chosen you to receive something great. He reminds her that God is merciful, gracious, compassionate towards you, Mary. You have nothing to fear from Him. Uh, maybe some of you this morning need to be reminded of that as well. If you're a Christian, you do not need to fear. Now, we revere God. We honor Him, and there is a good and holy fear of God. Uh, but we don't need to be terrified of Him. If you are a Christian, if Christ Jesus has reconciled you to God and your sins are forgiven, you have no need to be terrified of God. He is now your Father. He is loving. He is gracious towards you. 
You don't even need to fear your circumstances because just like Mary, God is with you. And if you're a Christian, all He allows in your life, He is working out for good. And the angel continues in verse 31. He, he says, this is what God is going to do. This is why I'm here, right? This is the message I've come to bring to you. And he begins to lay out promises from God. He begins to lay out promises from God. He tells Mary three things here in verse 31. First, he tells her, you're going to conceive a child in your womb. You're going to conceive a child in your womb. Now, this wouldn't be unusual after the wedding, right, in this day and age uh, in, in ancient Palestine. But for Mary to conceive before the marriage is consummated would raise some questions. That would go against Jewish law. Second, the angel tells her, uh, you're going to give birth to a son. That's pretty specific, isn't it? Uh, you, you know, when, when we conceive children naturally, you don't know what the gender of that child's going to be. It's impossible to know. But God knows exactly that this child's going to be a boy. He's planned out the future. This is really a prophecy, a specific statement. And lastly, the angel tells Mary, you will name him Jesus. You'll name him Jesus. Now, names had huge significance in the ancient world. Today, we just pick names generally because they sound cool, right? And, and millennials tend to get a lot of flack for this because, you know, millennials name their kids things like, you know, oak leaf or river, you know, what have you, right? Um, but in the ancient world, names were extremely meaningful, extremely meaningful. They, they usually uh, described the hopes of the parent for what that child would be. Um, Jesus, or Yeshua in Hebrew, means the Lord is salvation. The Lord is salvation. Is there any better name for this child to have than the Lord is salvation? This gets to what the heart of this child would do. As Matthew one twenty one says, he would save his people from their sins. Mary's child then will bring salvation to sinners. The Lord is saves. That in and of itself is a promise. That's a promise that this child brings salvation. Do you find that promise difficult to believe? Do you find it difficult to believe that Jesus really can forgive all of your sins, that he can save you from every single one, not just the past ones, but past, present, and future? Because that's what God promises even just in the name of this child, he will save his people. Uh, maybe you're visiting, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're watching online and you're not a Christian. And, and you might think, I've done too much bad stuff. There is no way that Jesus can save me from all my sins. The friend, God promises that through faith in the Savior he's provided, through Jesus you can and will be saved from your sins. Every single one. There's nothing too great that God cannot save you from it. Maybe you might think, well, I don't need saving from my sins at all. I'm a pretty good person. Um, you know, I made some mistakes, right? But being saved from my sin, I mean, come on, that's pretty extreme. I don't need that. But listen, if God is the judge of all people, and He is, and if He, the judge, says you need saving from your sins, which is what He says in His Word, and that's why He sends this child then friend, you need saving from your sins, whether you think you do or not. God says you do. And that's His promise too, that you need salvation from your sins. 
But the angel goes on and, and tells Mary and he tells us about who this child Jesus would be. Um, now, a lot of the time when people think about Jesus today, uh, they, they have this idea of this soft-spoken religious teacher who said some good things and always had this far-off look in his eyes, right? So, like, like the Buddha, you know, there's the hippie Jesus that people uh, conceive of. But that's not what we see here at all. That's not what the angel describes here at all. The, the angel's already told us that Jesus will save his people from their sins, but he adds even more. In verse 32, the angel says to Mary that Jesus will be great. He will be great. Uh, and indeed, this child would be the greatest to ever live, who would be given, as Philippians 2 says, the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No one's going to do that for your name or my name. Nobody's going to hear the name Dan and bow down and confess glory to God. But at the name of Jesus, that displays his greatness. We read that Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. It's the Son of God. Who else could claim such a title? Who else could claim such a title? Uh, this reveals that Jesus not only has a special relationship with God the Father, but that Jesus himself shares the essence and nature of God the Father. That Jesus himself is fully divine. He's fully God and fully man. And that's mysterious. But it's one, it's a truth that's taught clearly on the pages of, of Scripture, of God's Word. We read in verse 32 that Jesus will be given the throne of David. Now remember a few moments ago, we saw that Joseph was of the line of David. Well, that becomes important, right? Now, Jesus is considered legally a descendant of King David and will be given David's throne. Now, who's he going to be given it by? Well, the Lord God. He's not going to claim it for himself. The people aren't going to give him that throne. God will give Jesus the throne of David. And this is actually something that fulfills a promise given a thousand years before this moment right here. In 1 Chronicles 17. Let's turn there together. 1 Chronicles 17. Uh, we see in this chapter that God makes a covenant with David. And he tells David uh, about an offspring that David's going to have. And we'll start reading in verse, um, let's see, verse uh, 11. <clears throat> when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who is before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This is part of a binding promise God gives to David. Well, who is that offspring promised to David? Who is this one that would reign on David's throne forever? We see here in the angel's words to Mary, it's Jesus. It's none other than this child she is going to give birth to. God gives Jesus David's throne and Jesus will reign over the people of God forever. And his kingdom will have no end. We read that in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. This tells us Jesus isn't just the Savior, but He's also the everlasting King. And He's so unlike human rulers. 
He doesn't make promises he can't keep, right? He's a good king. He's a righteous king. He can't be bribed. He can't be bought. He doesn't have his own interests at heart. He is honest and just and compassionate. His kingdom will never fall. Eventually, the United States will, will not exist anymore. It's not going to exist. The Roman Empire existed for far longer than the United States has been in existence, and now we go as tourists to see its ruins. But what about Jesus' kingdom? It will reign forever and ever and ever, and no one will throw him off of his throne. And where does Jesus rule right now? He rules in the hearts of his people. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And in his return, he'll establish his reign over all creation, making all things right. This isn't just a political kingdom. Right? This isn't just reigning over ethnic Israel. This is reigning over all of God's people. This is the message that the angel Gabriel brings to Mary. You're going to conceive this royal redeemer who will be unlike any other person who's ever lived who will save his people from their sins, who will be king over them for eternity. Now last week we looked at Genesis 3.15 and saw how after Adam and Eve disobeyed God in, in the Garden of Eden, God promised to send a redeemer, the offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, born of woman. That child's promised here by the angel. A Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher from the 1800s, says that it was by temptation of an evil angel that man fell and paradise was lost. It was therefore more appropriate that good angels should be sent to announce the coming of the restorer through whom paradise is regained. Friends, do you believe the promises that God's making to Mary here? Do you believe that God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save you from your sins and to redeem the entire creation from the effects of the fall, of sin, of evil? If you don't, what hope do you have? What hope do you have? I hope that you don't hope in humanity. I hope you don't hope in humanity because humanity is the one that perpetrates great evil upon the earth. You have nothing to hope in if you are not hoping in Christ. All is lost. And we'll stay that way if, if there's no hope in Christ. But if you believe God's promise that He has indeed sent a Savior and that through Jesus He will eliminate all evil and sin and suffering, then you have an unshakable hope and you will not be put to shame. How does Mary respond to these impossible promises? How does Mary respond to these impossible promises? Uh, does she believe them? Does she believe them? Well, look at our second point, the promise of a miraculous conception. Now, imagine being Mary. You're just at home, minding your own business, and this angel appears and just puts all these things on the table. Right? You, your head's probably spinning a little bit. For Mary, there, there's a little bit of a question mark here. She's still a little bit confused as to the details, and, and that's pretty understandable. But for Mary, the question isn't about Jesus. The question's not about who he's going to be or what he's going to do. The question isn't about God's trustworthiness. The question is about something else. She asks in verse 34, How will this be since I'm a virgin? How will this be since I am a virgin? Um, this tells us that Mary realizes the angel's talking about something that's going to happen in the very near future. She realizes this isn't going to happen after she marries Joseph. Right? Conceiving a child after you're married, not unusual at all. 
But Mary realizes this is going to happen while I'm betrothed, while I'm still a virgin. There's no mention of a man here. How is she going to conceive this child? This isn't a question of doubt. This isn't like Zechariah who says that's ridiculous. This is a simple and sincere question. How will this happen? We already see here that she's, she believes what's been told her. She's just wondering how it's going to occur. And the angel answers Mary's question, but maybe in a way she doesn't expect. We look at verse 35 and, and we see the answer. The angel tells her that um, this child's not going to be conceived by a man in the natural way, but in a completely different way. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how this child will be conceived. The Holy Spirit will come upon Mary. The power of God will overshadow her. This is a miracle. This is the creative power of God at work. There's nothing uh, sexual about this at all. This really brings us back to Genesis. When God formed the world and formed the heavens and the earth, in the same way, He's using His creative power to form this child in Mary's womb from her flesh. <clears throat> this is a miracle. God doing something outside of the normal processes and laws of nature. There's never been another time where a child's been conceived like this. And as a result of this, this divine parentage, the child will be called holy. Verse 35. A word that describes the very purity and essence of God. And indeed, the angel says, He will be the Son of God. He will be the Son of God. This child's not just a human baby. He, he's genuine genuinely and fully human, just as much as you and I are. But he's also fully divine. Two natures united in one person. Really, there's two miracles that we see here. The virgin birth and the incarnation of the Son of God. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, taking on flesh, being born as a human baby. That is a miracle and a mystery. These are seemingly impossible promises. These are miracles, after all, which under normal circumstances don't occur. But the angel gives something else to Mary to strengthen her faith. In verse 36, he tells her, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a child. Remember, Elizabeth is past the point of biologically being able to have kids. She's too old. It's, it's physically impossible for her to conceive, and yet God has made it happen. That's another miracle. That's another miracle. And she's even six months along. And in light of this, in light of this, this miracle of Elizabeth's conception, in light of these miraculous promises that seem impossible, the angel reminds Mary and us of something vitally important in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. For nothing will be impossible with God. These are words to strengthen the soul. Words to lift up the weary. Words to comfort the fearful. Words to encourage the weak and fortify our faith. For nothing will be impossible with God. Yet do we believe that? Do we believe that? I, I, don't, I don't mean would we check yes on a test as to whether we think that's true. 
Right? I think there's very few people who would consciously deny that nothing is impossible with God. But practically, do we actually believe that? What would our prayer life indicate? Have you given up on praying for something because you think it's just not going to happen? Are you consumed with anxiety about your circumstances because you think there's no way God can help me here? Do we actually believe it? Do we actually believe it? Friends, nothing is impossible with God. Miracles are not impossible with God. The forgiveness of your sins, all of them, is not impossible with God. The healing of your heart and your body is not impossible with God. The transformation of your life and your character as the Holy Spirit sanctifies you is not impossible with God. Uh, overcoming those sins that have gripped you habitually for years is not impossible with God. The restoration and redemption of this entire broken creation is not impossible with God. But do we believe it? Do we believe it? Or do we go from day to day just burdened down by those things that we think, oh, maybe eventually God will get to this. Maybe. Do we actually believe that there's nothing impossible with God? Do you, do you have a, a God that's big enough that nothing's impossible for Him? Do you have a God that big? You see, the bigger our God is in our theology, in how we understand God, and who we actually believe in, the bigger our God is, the more comfort, peace, rest, and joy you can have. If your God is weak and ineffectual, what comfort can you have that He will take care of you for the future? But if your God is almighty and there is nothing impossible with Him, what is there to, to, to worry about to the point of sin? Right? What is there to be uh, discouraged about if there's nothing impossible with God? Is your God big enough that nothing's impossible for Him? Right? If you struggle to believe that nothing's impossible with God, uh, spend time growing in your perspective of who God is based on what He says and what He's done in His Word. You know, we live in Nevada. Nevada's the most mountainous state in the United States. We have the most mountains out of any state in the Union. And when you drive through Nevada, you see tons of mountains. You can become used to them, right? And, and you see them far off and they don't look so big. But when you walk right up to the base of that mountain and you stare straight up, your perspective on that mountain changes quite a bit, doesn't it? Right? You're driving through, oh, I could climb that mountain, no big deal. You're standing at the base of it, that's a lot bigger than I thought. Well, friends, you need to do that with God and His Word. You just have a casual thought about God here or there, you're not going to be affected by His greatness. And in those moments when things are difficult, how strengthened are you going to be by this casual idea of God? No, what we need to do is we need to take our Word and look up Get a right perspective on God's greatness, His power, His might, His goodness, so that we can say with the angel, yes, I know nothing is impossible with God. That doesn't mean He's going to do whatever we want, but it means that there's nothing impossible for Him, that nothing will thwart His good plans and purposes. That's a great comfort. And I'm sure it was for Mary as well. And what's her response? Well, we see... Our third point, 
the promises believed and received. Verse 38. Now Mary's had it all laid on the table for her. She's heard the angel's message. She's heard these seemingly impossible promises. Does she, does she scoff? Does she say, ah, come on. Does she need time to think about it? No. Does she reject what she's been told with disbelief? No, none of these things happen. Instead, Mary responds with great faith. She surrenders herself to the will of God. Look at what she says. At first she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I am the servant of the Lord. Mary sees herself not as an exalted woman, not as a big deal, but as a simple servant of the Most High God. And as a result, she submits herself to God's will instead of trying to change God's will. And her greatest desire is what? To see His will accomplished. To see His purposes come to pass. Now, no doubt Mary's not oblivious to the honor of being the mother of the Messiah. She, she gets it. But she also realizes she is but a servant of God. And so she has a willingness to serve Him. Too many times we expect God to serve us, don't we? To do what we want. But Mary has the right perspective. God is the king. And she is just a servant. Do you, do you share Mary's perspective? Do you see God as your servant? Or do you see yourself as a servant of the Most High? And, and if you do, if you're, if you're like, yes, I'm a, I'm a servant of God, do you listen to what He says in His Word? Do you obey Him? Do you trust Him? Do you actually submit your life to Him on His terms? And perhaps most importantly, if you're not a Christian, but you, yeah, I serve God, I'm good with God. Well, he has said you need to receive and accept His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You can't be God's servant if you don't believe in His Son. And next, Mary says, let it be done to me according to your word. And Mary willingly agrees to be the mother of the Savior. She says, I, I will do this. Let it be as you've said. I'll bear this child. I'll raise him. I'll name him Jesus. Mary is essentially saying, God, my life is yours. Do it as you see fit. Now, we might not realize the cost of this. One commentator points out that being willing to become pregnant with this child before her wedding, one, would raise a lot of questions. Two, would probably expose her to some social um, stigma. Three, it might even bring her the punishment for adultery. There is a cost, there is a risk socially to what Mary says when she says, let it be done to me according to your word. But what's Mary's ultimate concern? It's to honor God. It's to submit herself entirely to his will, regardless of what others may do or think. Friends, is that, is that your goal too? Right? If that's your goal too, is it, is it to honor God regardless of the cost? Is it to do what He would have you regardless of the risk? And by believing God, Mary receives the blessing of being the mother of the Messiah, of having an honor that no other woman in history has had. Think about it. Mary gets to spend 30 years with the Savior of the world. That's more time than anybody else, Right? She's blessed in that. She gets to witness God do these miracles. She gets to be visited by these wise men and shepherds and treasure up all the things that they're saying about her son. She gets to bring into uh, creation, right, through, through birth, her own Savior. 
really incredible. Why does she get to receive all those blessings? Well, because she believes God. She believes him. She believes God's promises. They were not impossible things to her. And as we'll see in the next few weeks, she, she gets to watch them come to pass. Uh, but friends, God doesn't just give his promises to Mary. He gives them to you. He gives them to you. He gives many promises through his word. Now perhaps you're here or, or watching and you're not a Christian. And again, so glad you're here. So glad you're, you're hearing this. Um, but for you, there's only two promises God makes. The first promise is the words from Jesus in John 6.37 where he says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Uh, the first promise God makes to you is that Jesus has died to forgive sin. That he took the punishment sinners deserve so that by faith in him and turning away from your sin, you will be forgiven, reconciled to God and given eternal life. That is a promise. If you come to Christ Jesus, he will never cast you out. But the second promise is different. Jesus says in John 3.18 that whoever does not believe in him is condemned. And God's second promise is that if you reject the Savior, he is provided. If you do not trust Jesus and refuse to trust him to save you from your sins, then God will hold you accountable for your sins. And you cannot save yourself. You'll stand condemned before the God who is the judge of all people and everything you've done, felt, thought, said will be laid out and judged impartially. Apart from Christ, you cannot stand before the justice of God and you will be thrown into hell. These are the two promises for you if you're not a Christian. Um, friend, which promise will you grab hold of? Which promise will you grab hold of? The promise of, of condemnation through trusting in yourself or salvation through trusting in Christ Jesus? If you are a Christian, then all of God's promises of blessing are yours. Every single one. And what a great benefit they are. J.I. Packer rightly says that we must return to the habit of meditating on God's promises, basing our prayers on God's promises, and venturing in faith in our ordinary life just as far as the promises will take us. Friends, we treat God's promises like they're so small. Like, like they're a shaky foundation. Like, like we're almost afraid to really grab onto them. Okay, I know God promises to take care of my needs, but, but i got to work like crazy and white-knuckle it because I don't really trust Him to take care of my needs, right? I, I know God promises never to leave me or forsake me, um, but, but I just feel so alone right now that I, I, I just can't believe that God is actually here with me in this difficulty. I, I know God promises to forgive all of my sin, but there's this one that I just don't feel forgiven by, and I'm going to let that guilt just bear me down instead of believing that God has dealt with all of them. I, I know God promises that He hears my prayers and He'll answer them according to His wisdom, but I've just prayed so much and I haven't got an answer and I wonder if He's really listening at all. Friends, God has made His promises. Will you stand on them? Will you stand on them? Will you receive the blessing of standing on them? Um, if you're a Christian, God's made a multitude of promises to you. You can go through your Bible cover to cover and write them all down, and I promise you, you will be so much more encouraged and strengthened in your faith on the other side of that. How much rest might you have in your soul if you rested on the promises of God like Mary does? How much true joy might you have in this Christmas season if your focus was on the promises of God 
in Christ Jesus. Because the Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. In the promised child, the Savior of the world. So friend, go to Him. Brother and sister, rest in Him. Find hope, joy, peace. Grab onto those promises that God has given you and do not let go. He is faithful to keep them. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you are faithful. Lord, you are not like us where we make promises that we forget to keep or that we can't keep or, or Lord, promises that we are um, negligent to keep. But Lord, when you make a promise, you keep it. And Lord, the weakness is not on your end, but on ours. And so, Lord, I ask that you would strengthen our faith in your promises and in you. Uh, Lord, that we wouldn't just treat your promises in your word like, um, like cliches or like nice sayings. But, Lord, they would be the very ground that our feet stand upon. And that, Lord, you would give us a deep sense that the promises are ours in Christ. And Lord, bring those things to mind. Help us to meditate on your promises, to think upon them. That like Mary, we would receive the blessing that those promises convey. The realities that those promises describe. Because you are faithful to keep them, Lord. And so, Lord, may that be the ground under our feet. Thank you so much for the promise of this child who has been born, who has died, who has risen again, and who is reigning at your right hand, Father. We thank you so much for our Savior, that the promises we've heard today, you've already fulfilled. Oh, Lord, encourage us with that. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.